Support for the Double Dome podcast comes from the Sorrell College of Business at Troy University, where students become geeks, an acronym for globally aware, ethical decision makers, engaged with the business community, knowledgeable to compete, and successful in business and life. More information at troy.edu business. The opinions expressed on this program represent the viewpoints of individual authors or contributors and do not necessarily reflect those of Troy University. This is eConversations, a joint production of Troy Trojan Vision and the Manuel H. Johnson Center for Political Economy. Now, here's your host, Dr. Dan Sutter. Hello and welcome to eConversations. I'm your host, Dr. Dan Sutter of the Johnson Center for Political Economy at Troy University. For decades, Wall Street and the world of finance have been popularly associated with greed and characters like Jordan Belmont, the real-life wolf of Wall Street, and the fictional Gordon Gecko. The fear of stock swindles and insider trading led to the creation of the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, to regulate financial disclosures by corporations. Over the last decade, Efforts have ramped up to push for socially responsible investing to protect the environment and to make the world a better place. And these efforts, today lumped together under the title of ESG, have been perhaps even more controversial than the pursuit of unimaginable wealth. What is so controversial about ESG and what federal regulations and proposed regulations are advancing it? How might it change finance in our lives? Joining me on eConversations today is Mike DeBow, who's a, a, the Stephen Everett Wells Professor of Municipal Law at the Cumberland School of Law at Samford University. Professor DeBow has a bachelor's and master's degrees in economics from the University of Alabama and a law degree from Yale Law School. Before teaching at Samford, Professor DeBow clerked for uh, then federal judge and the, now the late Ken Starr, and he was an advisor for the Federal Trade Commission. He's also served as an assistant to the uh, Alabama Attorney General. Well, welcome back to the show, Mike. Thank you, Dan. Very good to be with you. Now, we've had, uh, I had you on this show once before to uh, talk about this a little over a year ago, this topic of, of ESG, but it's an important enough and developing enough issue. I thought we needed to uh, talk about it again. But before we get into any of the details, uh, remind us again, like, what are these three uh, components, this E, S, and G? And, and, uh, how do we start to make sense of this? Well, the, the acronym stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance Issues. Um, as a practical matter, I think right now the most significant and controversial of those three subjects is the environmental piece, um, specifically questions about climate change and, and global warming and all that. And is in, within that issue set, how it impacts um, the uh, carbon-based uh, industries, the, the fossil fuel industries and their customers uh, seems to be the most, uh, the, the single most important driver of, of this controversy right now. The, the other two, social and governance, these are issues that have been around uh, under different acronyms for a long time. It used to be called co Corporate Social Responsibility or CSR. And it's kind of a grab bag of whatever's currently, uh, you know, sort of high profile political issues in as far as the social component uh, goes. Um, and the, as far as the governance component, uh, it's issues like, uh, you know, how, how a corporation's board of directors should be 
chosen and who should be on the board and all that, uh, all those sorts of issues. That That's an example of, of governance, um, debates over gover corporate governance. And again, all of this has been around since the, the since the depression, really, the, the S and the G portions. I think it's really the environmental portion of this debate that's that's new and and different. No, another thing that we'll be probably mentioning this term, so I thought it might be good for us to talk, uh, talk about it ahead of time, is a term called fiduciary duty, because that's going to be the, the balancing uh, element here in a lot of these uh, discussions we're going to have, especially when you're talking about pension fund managers or other investment managers. So tell us what, what's meant by a, a fiduciary duty and when one you know party has a, a fiduciary duty to another. Yeah, it's a really important legal uh, concept and, and it's it's easy to state what a fiduciary amounts to. If, if someone stands in a fiduciary duty relationship with someone else, that person owes the, the beneficiary of the duty, uh, what's called the duty of undivided loyalty. That is, you're the, the agent of the, of the beneficiary, the person with the fiduciary duty is the agent, has a, just an absolute duty to look out for the best interests of the beneficiary. And this, this occurs in a number of occupations and lines of business. Within a corporation, we say that the members of the board of directors and the officers of the corporation owe a fiduciary duty to the corporation that consists of a duty of care, the duty of loyalty. Um, in other settings, like the, the investment setting, an investment manager owes a fiduciary duty to his client to always put the client's best interest first and to only be interested in advancing the best interest of the client, not the personal interest of the agent. The agent, if the agent, say, earns a commission on selling something to his client, uh, that's, that raises at least the question of a conflict of interest, and that's, that's governed by fiduciary duty standards, which are quite uh, demanding. To, to be a fiduciary to someone else is to take on a very high level of responsibility and, um, and duty towards, towards uh, getting the best deal for your, for your um, beneficiary as possible. Of course, it, it, although you have this like duty, you're supposed to be, uh, especially in investment terms, uh, looking out for the best interest of, of your client, the, 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 the person whose funds you're investing, uh, we also know that markets are, are very forward-looking in terms of returns. So what's already happened is yesterday's news, and you're not going to make money on what's happened in the future, in the past. You, you really have to be trying to look into the future. And, and there, there, I think, you know, we, we certainly get a little bit of, of wiggle room where, it, it, you know, you have a little bit of discretion in terms of whether you're following, you know, whether, whether you're actually doing the best job to invest people's funds, because we can't know. If everybody knew what was the best way to invest your funds to make the most money going forward, you wouldn't have to hire somebody to, to do it for you. So it, there is inevitably some element of, of trying to project what you think the future is going to look like, and, and that investment manager is going to exercise some kind of expertise or, or judgment in trying to, to judge what they think is, is a, a good future for their uh, client, right? Well, that's right. And, and we, um, we give discretion to fiduciaries like that, but, but they're only supposed to exercise the discretion with one goal in mind, and that is the best interest of, of the client. So we recognize that fiduciaries can't know the future, and there's, you know, they're all kind of informational uh, uh, limitations that they that they have to work with, but uh, even in light of all that, they need to have a single goal in mind 
which is to get the best return for the client, given the client's attitude about risk and all the other factors that enter into financial planning. So uh, an, another term that comes up a lot in describing, I may have, maybe I said this a minute ago, is that you're supposed to have the, the fiduciary has an undivided loyalty to his client, to, to the beneficiary. And so that's 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 the idea is that, yes, it's an, it's an uncertain thing to, to be in charge of investing for an individual but your the the goal of the of the fiduciary is supposed to be clear in their mind as they as they uh, deal with the the uncertainty. Now, in, when we uh, as economists when we, we talk about uh, financial markets, we often assume or we we assume that investors are trying to get the best return that they can for their money. But investments really uh, like every other transaction in the market economy, a voluntary action, and so. You know, investors are, are, at one sense, free to use their money however they might want to, especially you know, if, if they decide they want to try to make the world a better place or you know, they're, they're concerned about the, the effects of climate change. They, they want to try to do something to help make sure that their children or grandchildren grow up and, and you know, inherit a better world. People are free to use their money any way they want, right? Absolutely, yes. I mean, if, you, if there's a client who doesn't want their uh, investment capital to be in uh, so, uh, businesses that make uh, uh, alcoholic beverages, then that's that's the wish of the client is paramount, and the the fiduciary should act pursuant to the wishes of the client, whatever they are, and it and it could certainly carry over into a number of environmental kinds of preferences and, and all the rest of that. So yeah, well, I certainly would not uh, object to anybody's individual decision about what companies they want to invest in and which they do not. And then if there's a, a decent number of investors who might share some certain preferences, especially like with regard to climate change or renewable energy or so forth, uh, we, we should probably expect to see some financial institutions or organize what would we call like sort of special or targeted funds to say, oh, a group of, uh, get a group of investors who all want to sort of like invest in renewable energy. And then you're going to be invested a lot in that. But that's sort of explicit. It's more or less explicit uh, under, as you said, under the instructions or, or do, uh, instructions from the investors. Right, right. You would, I mean, if there is a market for this, you'd expect the, the uh, industry to respond and to offer these kind of investment vehicles to people with those, you know, those preferences about investing. And they have. Yeah. So. so, but then this gets us into some other issues, and this gets back to, you know, I assume what you were talking on, touching on with fiduciary duty, and that is when somebody might be investing people's money without permission, certainly not maybe explicit permission. And one of the cases where this comes up with uh, right now is, is uh, pension plans, and, and the people who are investing that money on behalf of the members of the pension and whether they should be investing in ESG-related investments or not, right? Right, right. Certainly there are going to be many beneficiaries of a pension fund who are not paying close attention to all these issues. And if you ask them, well, which would you prefer, a higher rate of return on your pension fund or a more ESG-friendly but lower rate of return, uh, a lot of people, I think, would choose the higher uh, rate of return for their pension. But... Um, the, 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 the extent to which the law can sort of protect beneficiaries of a plan like that is um, 
it's not going to be an automatic sort of thing under the best of circumstances. There was the current regulations that the U.S. Department of Labor has for uh, managers of um, pension funds that are governed by the federal statute, the ERISA statute that, that governs all that, were adopted a couple of years ago in the Trump administration, and it directs fund managers to only look at rate of return uh, uh, issue, uh, uh, features in making investment decisions. There is a set of uh, rules that are proposed by the current Department of Labor that will rescind the Trump era rules and adopt new rules that will be more um, uh, permissive to allow fund managers to look at ESG ratings um, without worrying so much about uh, objections from fund beneficiaries. And I think that is a troubling uh, development um, going forward for for people who's um, who have a, a, a managed pension fund. It it seems to encourage more of uh, attention be, to be paid to uh, social issues rather than uh, simply uh, prudent investing. I think this, you know, you, you mentioned this, but maybe we should talk a little bit more to make make sure people uh, are clear. Is when this, you're talking about one of these managed uh, uh, funds, or I guess probably a, a defined benefit uh, plan as opposed to like a, a 401k that many people might have for their uh, retirement where you have quite a bit of discretion o over what, where you want, you as an individual want to put your money. It, yeah. it's, these, it's these plans where you've got like hundreds or thousands of, of employees and now and then retirees all in it, their money's all pooled together, right? Right, 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 that's right. And, and those are the ones where you know you, you get into this issue and, and, and clearly they probably would never, if you've got 10,000 uh, employees who's a pension fund, or they, they'd probably never be able to completely agree on what what uh, companies they want to invest in, although most of them probably have little or no knowledge of the day-to-day -day investment of the, their their funds. But, you know, that's that's where there's some, I think, real uh, scope here for something to get beyond that fiduciary duty. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of discretion uh, under the best set of uh, rules laid down in advance in terms of how that money gets invested. And yeah, I was talking about the pooled uh, funds, the, the um, you know, employer, basically employer managed uh, pension fund. Another area where uh, there are some current regulations under uh, consideration is, is from the uh, SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission. And, and this, uh, this set of regulations do, or proposed regulations, because I guess they're not final yet, but you can tell us a little bit about this, has to do with uh, reporting uh, of ESG uh, activities, in particular climate change-related activities for uh, for corporations. So tell us a little bit about this, these roles. Okay, so this is under consideration at the SEC. Uh, currently, they put out a set of proposals uh, earlier this year and invited public comment and there have been a, a, just a, a flood of public comments on the proposals, some, some 14,000 uh, individuals and, and companies and institutions have, have uh, commented on it. Um, it would uh, specify certain kinds of environmental disclosures for all of the firms that are covered by the securities laws on an annual basis, uh, particularly energy usage uh, not only by the company, but also by its suppliers and other people in its supply chain. A lot of the, co the negative comments on the, on the um, 
proposed rule have focused on how expensive it will be for um, companies to comply. And the thought, there was a uh, comment filed by the Heritage Foundation against this that estimates that it will triple the compliance cost that public companies currently face to comply with all the SEC regulations that exist up till now, right? So you take that number, the additional number needed to, to make these estimates and so on of, of, the, of the climate change numbers you're supposed to report will be three times the current um, uh, level of expenditure on the part of public corporations. And this, of course, is, is money that comes essentially out of the stockholders' pockets to pay for these kinds of, of compliance costs. So um, it'll be very onerous to, to do. Some people doubt that it can be done very well at all. And here you've got the, the SEC attempting to standardize something. There are already hundreds of different uh, ESG ratings provided by private rating services. And so why the SEC thinks it needs to come along and number one, standardize it, and number two, mandate it is, is kind of, I think, the focus of the, of the criticism. Um, I don't know what to think the SEC will do in response to the criticism, but they have to address it in order to be able to defend the rules once they're adopted uh, against uh, judicial, uh, you know, a, a uh, challenge in the courts from people who think that the, the rules themselves don't make sense, they're not in, internally consistent, or they're beyond the scope of the, of the commission's authority. You just uh, talk, go a little bit further into this, because uh, in terms of disclosures, and uh, making sure that companies disclose things uh, that, that, you know, that they know about their operations. To some extent, that does touch on one of the, the core goals, missions of the SEC, and that's like investor protection, protecting investors from fraud, certainly misstatements by companies, for them to tr try and say one thing in their annual report, and, and when they're doing something completely different, uh, that, that gets into issues of, of you know, you know possibly out and out fraud where they're intentionally trying to mislead investors. So there is something at one level to possibly be concerned about if, if you know, companies aren't being transparent uh, with, with what they're doing or if they're exaggerating. Because I, I, mean, I know a lot of environmental groups accuse uh, companies of greenwashing or somehow saying they're doing all these great things on climate change when they're not. So there, there are some issues here that in terms of investor protection, aren't there? There, there are, um, but there's. A, I think there's a big disagreement about how significant the issues are really to a, a, a retail investor. So, so a couple of terms here: retail investor or a so-called Main Street investor, are, are just individuals who are investing in the stock market, mom and pop investors, right? And so, traditionally, the SEC has presented itself as the champion of the walls of the Main Street investor. And that's sort of been the focus of everything they've, they've tried to do. Now you can argue about in the, their, their past performance, how well have they performed? Have they done some things maybe that don't pass the cost benefit test? So there's a lot of, but, but the focus has always been on protecting the small investor. Um, uh, I hear what you're saying about there, there is some concern about misleading statements to the public about environmental performance of a corporation, but doesn't doesn't the attempt to compel uh, disclosure and 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 standardize it on the SEC's part look more like service to the environmental agenda than it does service to individual inv small individual investors? 
And that's that's been some of the criticism of the proposed rule is it's a it's a really radical break with that focus on what small investors want um, or or can benefit from. And so, um, you know, I, everybody's welcome to their own opinion about that. Of course, um, I tend to think that it is a significant change of emphasis uh, away from protecting small investors and in favor of these bigger social uh, issues, uh, agendas having to do with with the bigger uh, agenda, bigger bigger social items, rather than the protection of individual investors that are simply trying mostly a, a solid return on their investment. Now, and I want to go a little bit, expand a little bit on this as well, because you mentioned the ESG scores. And so if you had a company that, like, say, wasn't report, currently wasn't reporting, like, anything re regarding their climate change operations, carbon emissions or anything like that, um, if an investor sort of wanted to know if, if this was a, a good company in terms of, of climate change or, or not, you mentioned that there are the, already these ESG scores that exist out there for, I think, certainly all companies of any size, um, and, and certainly for, for, for banks and sometimes even individual investors for countries and, and, and so on. So there, there are groups out there that are, are already presumably doing some research and, and gathering some data and, and turning it into some kind of a score that, uh, that if, if an investor did want to learn a little bit about the, the activities of a company that's not really reporting anything, they would have some alternative ways to, to get that, some information, right? Oh, yes. Let me, let me give you, just very quickly, there are a couple of numbers that, that'll indicate how widespread this information uh, is and how it's available. Uh, and this is from a recent article by uh, a Yale law professor named Jonathan Macy. And he's looking at a 2017 study of this, uh, a private reporting that said that 83% of the top 100 companies in the Americas, I guess that's Western Hemisphere, published a corporate responsibility report, as do 77% of the top 100 companies in Europe and 78% in Asia. And of the largest 250 companies globally, reporting rates are uh, 93%. So, and this was five years ago. So um, sure, clearly the, the, the investor interest in this has prompted corporations to submit to sort of outside audits in terms of, of rating. And there's a lot of information available to uh, investors, at least with regard to large corporations about this. And there are also environmental groups that uh, would provide, in effect, third-party auditing, as you mentioned, a third-party auditing or, or certification of companies' alleged green uh, or environmental protection, and now like net-zero claims. And so, you know, to the extent that you can rely on those independent environmental groups, that in effect, to some extent, are selling their their name here. They're saying, "Hey, we will. We are only going to certify companies that are serious about this." And you know, when they give it their stamp of approval, I mean, you already have some uh, some ways to get some pretty reliable information, I think, out there in the market without the SEC intervening here. Right. Yeah, I think I think that's an entirely fair characterization of it. Let's see. So you mentioned that that uh, uh, there might be a potential, especially with these SEC rules, that there could be some kind of uh, a legal challenge to them. And if you could, since I'm not a lawyer and I'm not going to try to just speculate on this, if you could elaborate a little bit on uh, what what the proposed. Now, I've certainly seen in, in news reports saying it's virtually certain these rules 
are going to be challenged, although, of course, we don't know what the final rules exactly yet are going to be yet. Uh, talk a little bit about some of the, the grounds on which they might be challenged. Well, the sort of um, there's a there's a statutory sort of challenge and a constitutional challenge, I think, that could be um, made and will be made eventually against these rules. The the more uh, pedestrian, simply statutory challenge is to is to wonder about and, and attack the idea of whether the SEC has authority under its statutes to to do this. Um, the the, the statutes are pretty vague and it looks they're passed by Congress in 1933 and 1934 in the sort of depths of the depression and the, the system that they set up gives an awful lot of discretion to the SEC that is Congress does not specify much of anything in the statutes themselves in terms of detail so you, if you look at the statutes they're not going to give you the answer to the question is ESG investing you know something we ought to promote or not uh, it's all very general, and we're going to defer to the SEC's expertise uh, with respect to most of these questions. Now, within the scope of that, would the adoption of the rules as proposed or substantially as proposed um, pass judicial review uh, under the, the idea that they have to be um, a, a rational um, uh, decision on the part of the agency. Uh, Cost-benefit factors into this to some extent. You can look at the benefits claimed by the commission for, for the regs versus the compliance cost on corporations to produce that benefit, and I'm sure there'll be an argument about that. Um, does, the, does the disclosure here really relate to a statutory, you know, some grant of statutory authority to the agency, if, if a court decides this is mostly about something not having to do with protecting investors, then if it's more of an environmental policy than an investor protection one, I think that's, uh, you know, that's uh, uh, going to be uh, a potential weakness of these rules as well. They're, they have to, like I said earlier, they have to respond to the criticism that the comments contain. Uh, not every single criticism, but they have to read the comments sort of in good faith and with an open mind and respond to the criticism. And maybe part of the response will be to alter the, the rules from the proposal to the final version. Hopefully they'll be improved by the commission's reaction to the criticism. But if they don't, you know, if they leave substantial criticisms unaddressed or not addressed in a convincing sort of way, that's another ground that a court could use to say, well, you know, there's an abuse of discretion here that you that you engaged in. So that's all kind of normal administrative law, judicial review of agency action type stuff. Um, kind of at a, at a higher remove from the day-to-day -day than, than that would be, the current Supreme Court has articulated in the last term or two uh, a much greater willingness to uh, investigate agency decision-making really on the merits than it has in the passed, uh, well, since a decision called Chevron Corporation that was in 1984. So for about the last 40 years, 35 or 40 years, the, the court's kind of taken a hands-off position as far as um, uh, what's been committed to agency discretion. Uh, but the current court, uh, new members of the court, have are, are articulating a different kind of um, 
willingness to look at an argument that the court is that the agency is acting uh, beyond its authority uh, on the idea that uh, Congress would not want to and didn't intend to vest agency discretion with regard to major issues in vague statutory language. So to put it a different way, the argument would be Congress didn't intend in 1933 or 34 to give the SEC powers over environmental law questions. And if they if they'd intended that to be if they intended environmental protection to be a, a a big topic in securities regulation, they would have said something about that. And you read the statutes, and of course the statutes don't address it. So it's possible that the the um, eventual um, regulations about environmental disclosures will run afoul of what's called the major questions doctrine. And, um, you know, that's that's another possibility that didn't really, wasn't really on people's radar, I don't think, even two or three years ago. But the more recent case law about this raises that as a real possibility. And just, you know, one thing that I guess we're not going to get into, uh, have time to get into, but... You know, there are issues with uh, the compliance costs, and you mentioned that figure of you know, possibly tripling the, the cost of complying with SEC regulations. And then particularly, you know, as economists study this, we know that there's a, a troubling tendon. Regulatory burdens bur uh, mean less to large corporations because they can hire the, the experts, the lawyers the, the, to, to handle these things, whereas they could be crushing burdens for smaller firms. And so that, that's, again, another issue with these SEC regulations. Well, we've come to the end of our time, so thanks so much for coming on and talk with us. And thank you all for joining us. Join us again next time for another eConversations. This has been eConversations, a joint production of Troy Trojan Vision and the Manuel H. Johnson Center for Political Economy at Troy University. Support for the Double Dome podcast comes from the Sorrell College of Business at Troy University, where students become geeks, an acronym for globally aware, ethical decision makers, engaged with the business community, knowledgeable to compete, and successful in business and life. More information at troy.edu business.